It is so great to see you today. It is absolutely just brilliant to have you with us for the start of our brand new series called Welcome Home. And let me just say from the off, you know what? I don't know how you've got to be here in church with us this morning for the 11 o'clock, but we're just delighted that you're here. And more than an invitation to church, I hope that you today, since coming in, just feel like you've been welcomed in as part of the family. Because actually, we're not really all that pumped about building church. We wanna build family. We wanna build a sense of community. And you guys are part of that. You're welcome to be a part of that. And we're just super glad that you are here. In fact, let me just kind of offer up this small disclaimer just before we even start. You know, I get it. Coming into church can feel a little bit awkward. It can feel a little bit weird, not necessarily always knowing everything that's happening, or maybe this is a different environment to where you're used to going and hanging out on a Sunday. But can I just say this from the off, and it's just simply this, that that every single person that you see, whether it be up front or whether it be serving you in T-shirts, now or after the service, I just want you to know that there's not one of us that actually thinks that we're all that at all. In fact, we think that there is nothing special, nothing good, nothing great, nothing significant about any single one of us, but what we all kind of buy into is this idea that we are all really imperfect people, but we follow a really perfect God. And it's the fact that He's welcoming of really imperfect people like me, like you, like us as a family, that makes us wanna do this thing as family together. Now, you know, I don't know about your family, but chances are you've experienced some good times. And chances are you've experienced some bad times. If you're a parent, you'll know exactly what it's like to experience some hard and difficult times, right? I mean, nobody gives you a manual, do they, about how you should parent in a perfect kind of manner or way. I mean, it can just be so complicated at times. And the thing about parenting, especially if you've got more than one kid, is the moment that you feel like you're winning with one kid and you've got him on the straight and narrow, it feels like the wheel's falling off with the other kid, right? It just feels like you live life between this pendulum of like, good kid, bad kid, good kid, bad kid. It's like, what on earth are we supposed to do with these children? You know, as parents, Emma and I, we've had many a time where we've had to discipline our kids. I mean, there are so many stories that we could tell you. In fact, many of which you might have even heard us speak about from the platform. There was this one time where we decided to go on holiday and we were staying, I think, in the northern part of Cyprus. And I think that because of the kind of like the legislation there to do with like Greek rule, Turkish rule, all that kind of thing. It meant that data was really expensive on your mobile phone. So before we went, we traveled to the airport in a minibus. We made this rule with all of our kids like, hey, listen, when you go, nobody goes on our data. In other words, like you can't take mum and dad's phone and go on Facebook. Like that's the one rule, all holiday. You can do whatever you want, right? But you just cannot go on the data. When we got back home, I got a phone call from Orange at that time and they gave me an invoice. And the invoice for the data usage on holiday was bigger and more expensive than the entire cost of our holiday. Because like one of our boys had just been sat there sweating on Facebook all the time on Emma's phone. 
You know, it was one of those moments where we kind of, we lined them all up. We call it the interrogation line in our house. And it's kind of like they get the finger pointed at them and normally one of them's asked to leave the house forever. But it's not the only time that we've had difficulties. I remember one time I came home from work and Emma was like, oh, the boys are playing in the garden. And I noticed that there was all these like small fragments of this black stuff lying all around the garden. And I'm thinking to myself like, well, what on earth is that? And I went outside and the boys were sat on top of the shed and they were like, we're cleaning the shed. I'm like, what do you mean you're cleaning the shed? You're sat on top of the shed. And they're like, we're getting all this rubbish off the top of the shed for you. They'd ripped off all the felt off the top of the shell of the shed and just thrown it and strewn it all over the garden. I'm like, boys, that is not helpful. Right, back on the interrogation line. We're going to find out who it was that commissioned this crazy act. You know, not so long ago, actually, I was having a conversation with my wife, Emma, and I'm saying to her, you know, hon, you're eating a lot of just eat at the moment. And she's looking at me as if to say, like, are you crazy? And I'm just going like, hon, seriously, like, you must be buying a lot of pizzas and a lot of kebabs on the side because I never see you eating them, but all I see are just eat transactions coming out of our bank account. And I'm like, look, hon, it's not crazy money, but it's like, it's eight pound here, it's six pound there, it's nine pound there. And I said, I don't even know when you're getting to do this because you never share any of this food with me. And she's looking at me as if to say like, you think I'm just eating kebabs to the house all the time? And I'm like, well, I know I'm not kebabbing, uh, getting kebabs delivered to the house all the time. And she's like, and you think I am? I'm like, well, it's coming off your card. It's coming out of your bank account. Anyway, we got our boys in the interrogation line and we're like, right, what's going on here? One of our boys had punched in Emma's bank details to his phone and was just doing just eat on tap. Like whenever he wanted just eat, just coming straight out of my bank account. I'm not happy about that, right? But here's the one thing that I've learned about the interrogation line. Have you ever noticed how if you're a parent, you've ever had to like discipline any of your children and you line them all up and you get your finger out and you start to like give them what for? Have you ever noticed how much their posture changes? Like all of a sudden, these overconfident, cocky kids and teenagers that have normally have got so much to say about everything, when they find out that they're in the wrong and they've been caught, all of a sudden, they start to just look down. And all of a sudden, their body language goes very inward as they start to feel the weight of the guilt and the shame. In fact, one of the things I've noticed about my kids, and maybe it's the same in your family, is that it's really hard for our kids to ever look up when they know they're in the wrong. It's really difficult for our kids to look up at mum or dad when they're feeling like mum and dad is mad with them. But I think that's the same for each and every one of us. It's really hard to look up when you think that someone is mad with you. You know, I think that coming to church can be a bit of an awkward experience because it raises so many different kinds of questions. Especially if you're in church just sort of checking things out, it can be quite an awkward time and things feel a little bit weird. They seem a little bit strange. It's not perhaps what you're used to all of the time. And there are many reasons that make church feel awkward. I mean, think about it like this. You've come into church for the 11th and at some point on your way in, you've been greeted by a bunch of people who are high-fiving you, throwing chocolates at you, and some of them are even like hugging you, like telling you it's so awesome that you're here. And some of you that are a little bit like me, like you're just not a hugger, you're kind of like, you don't really know what to do with your hands, so you just kind of keep them by your side, feeling really awkward, and you're like, 
well, this is just super weird. And I totally get it because where else in life does that happen? I mean, I've not once ever been to Halfords to have the tires changed on my car and been greeted by the mechanic in his overalls who's there just high-fiving me and wanting to hug me and like, come on now, don't be shy. It's great to see you. Like, I've just never had that happen. And that can be a reason in part why coming to church can just feel a little bit awkward and a little bit, this is just not the normal thing for me to do. And then the whole music thing starts, right? The worship bands start to play and you're kind of looking around and you're thinking, well, this is just a bit weird. This isn't what I expected. I mean, there are people like clapping their hands and then there's like one guy on your row and he's like standing there with his arms up and you're like, what is he doing? Like, seriously, what is going on right there? And even though it's completely normal to behave in that way at a concert or a sporting event, right? To see it in church, it just kind of makes you feel like, well, this is a bit awkward. This is just a bit weird. And often you don't get to know the backstory behind why people wanna high five you and hug you and clap their hands when the music starts and sometimes lift their hands up. But it's because of this idea that we as imperfect people get to follow and pursue a very perfect God who is incredibly welcoming of us. And when you know that, it just kind of, you ch- kind of changes you from the inside out, but being in that kind of awkward and at times weird environment, it can just start to create some questions. And the first question that probably comes to mind is like, well, is God even real? I mean, like I'm in church, but is God even real? I mean, seriously, do you expect me to believe that? Well, can I just say from the off, like if you're thinking that right now, We've all been in that place, that exact spot where you are. We've all asked those questions. And let me tell you this, I even think that our very perfect Father is also completely 100% okay with you coming in with doubts and questions. He can handle it, I assure you that. But then the second thing that kind of is raised in our mind is not only a question about is God real, but if hypothetically He were real, what we then start to ask ourselves, well, If God is real, then what on earth does he think about me? Because if God is real, and just kind of travel with me on a journey for a moment, but if God is real, then what that means is there is this all-knowing God who kind of knows everything about you and I, everything that's good and everything that's bad, and that freaks us out. Because there is no way, right, that a God that knows everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever said, every thought that we've ever had, we then start to think, well, there is no way that a God that knows all that stuff about me, there is no way that that type of God would even come close to liking, never mind wanting anything to do with somebody like me at all. And that makes perfect sense for us to think like that. You know, who else would think that a God would want something to do with you if he knew everything about you? But it does raise this question. What does God think about when God thinks about you? Or maybe there's an even better question that we can all ask and explore because maybe it's way more significant. What do you think God thinks about when God thinks about you? You know, this is so important 
Because what you think God thinks about when God thinks about you can have a huge impact on the way that you relate to God our Father. It makes such a big difference because one of the biggest problems that we all face is often we take our lead for how we think God thinks about us based upon how we think about ourselves. And this is a problem. Let me show you why. We do this all of the time. Have you ever noticed when you're having a good day? Kind of like you go into work and everybody lives on the ward. You go into the office and nobody's backstabbing and nobody's being hard work today. You go into the conference room and you're able to get the deal over the line and it just feels to you like this is a great day. You chair the meeting and everyone listens and everybody buys into you. And you're like, this is just superb. It couldn't get any better. I mean, the weather's great. Your dinner out was fantastic. And then you get home from a great day at work and you're kind of like, you're looking around the house and you can see that the kids have even gone about doing all the chores without being pestered or asked even once. You're like, this isn't a great day. This is a miraculous day. And then your husband comes home or your wife comes home and you guys are just, you're getting on like a house on fire. I mean, there's no petty argument. There's no squabbling going on. It just feels to you like everything today is just going tremendously well. Why is it when you're having a good day, it's so much easier to think that God is pleased with you on your good days? And yet in contrast, if you think about the other days that we have, the other days when you go in and nobody wants to buy anything, so you doctor your own sales form just so you get your monthly bonus. Or the day that you go into work and everything just feels like it's not going right at all. You know, the machine breaks down and you can't fix it and the company loses money. Or you make a mistake and you end up getting into trouble with your superiors and it just feels tough. And then you go home and the house is just in complete and utter disarray. And you're just like, how did this even happen? And you're like, why don't the kids do anything around the house? And then you realise that your husband's already home or she's already home and you haven't prepared tea. And it's like, this is just the worst day ever. So like World War III breaks out now between you and your wife or you and your husband. And it just feels to you like this is a terrible day. And on your bad days, why is it so easy for us to think that when you're having a bad day, that God's just not pleased with you at all? Have you ever noticed that? It's almost like what we think is that the way that God thinks towards us is triggered by the way we think towards ourselves. You know, another thing that we take our lead from in terms of what we think God thinks about when God thinks about you is we take our lead from the way in which other people see us and value us. So when you've been the standout employee of the month in work and you're kind of like just so pleased with the, pro pleased with the progress that you've made and you've got your bonus, you're getting the pay rise and everything's just going great and your boss is patting you on the back and now your company's made targets. Why is it in those days that it's just so easy for us to think, well, everybody else is happy with us, so that must equal also that God is pleased with us too. And it's so easy for us to understand why we think like this. Because ever since we were a child, we've been ingrained into this reward system 
this reward system way of life. I mean, think about it. When you were a child and you were so high in primary school and you were learning your ABCs, how come whenever you got your ABCs right, you got a gold star or you got a smiley face and now you lived for your gold star or the chart on the fridge that said that you'd been well behaved and you got extra playtime at home. You know, we're used to this kind of good behavior equals a reward system because it's been ingrained within us since we were small. The same thing happens when you're a teenager. Now when you're a teenager and you do your bedroom without being asked, it equals like extra pocket money or you're allowed to stay out later than you ordinarily would have been or you get to do a fun trip because we get it. Desired behaviour brings about a reward. It brings about something good. As an adult, you do extra work, you stay late, you get financially rewarded, you get a pay increase, you get a promotion, you receive affirmation from your employers because this is how the system works. In marriage, you do something that your loved one would love you to do without even being asked, you get rewarded in one way or another, something good comes your way, you know? It's just how it goes. And so many of us, we're accustomed to only feeling love and acceptance according to our achievements and our accomplishments. But the thing is, what if God doesn't work like that? What if that's just not the system that he lives his life to? What if the way you think that God thinks when he thinks about you is not according to the behavior reward system? What if it's, not based on that at all. I mean, what if it's not about anything that you could do, anything you could achieve, or anything you could accomplish? What would that mean for us today? So what do you think God thinks about when God thinks about you? In the New Testament, there is this story and it's Jesus speaking to a group of people. And what's fascinating is the reason why I love the scriptures, why I love the Bible, is that I find that there is just so much practical wisdom in there that just makes sense. And Jesus has got this crowd that are gathering around him, and he's trying to convey this idea to them about this is what God in heaven is like. He starts to tell this story so that they can understand this is really what your Father in heaven is truly like. I mean, forget all the other stories, forget all the other things, forget all the other rumours that you've heard. Let me tell you exactly what God is like. It's almost like Jesus says, let me tell you exactly what God thinks about when God thinks about you. And at the start of Luke chapter 15, it tells us that in Jesus' company at that time, there were tax collectors and not just any sinners, but notorious sinners. In other words, the best sinners on the planet were really happy and comfortable in the presence of Jesus, just to listen to him speak. And I love that. I love that people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and Jesus liked them back. I hope that we build a church that gives that out as a sound, that people who are nothing like Jesus, you are so welcome to be a part of this church and you can like it and we will like and love you back. Not for what you've done, not for what you've achieved, not for what you've accomplished, but for who you are. So Jesus, he's having this conversation with these tax collectors and these sinners and he starts to just talk about like, let me tell you a story about what God is really like. So it reads like this. 
He starts off and he says, a man had two sons. The youngest son told his father, I want, to sh- I want a share of your estate now before you die. So this father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Let's just stop there for a moment. So here is Jesus and he's giving out this story, this example, and he's basically saying, look, there's a family unit over here, but one of the sons turns to his father and he says, listen, dad, I wanna be on the receiving end of my inheritance right now, which, by the way, would have made everybody in the crowd gasp when they heard that sentiment. Because we're talking in Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, everybody would have been horrified that a son and the youngest son would ask that of his father. Because in essence, they knew, they knew the context. He was saying to his dad, like, dad, I just wish that you were dead. Because if you were dead, I'd have all of your money and life would just be better for me. I mean, if we wanna kind of paraphrase it, we could say it like this. That statement was the most hurtful and offensive thing you could ever say to a father. And the crowd were just in shock and awe. They were like, he said, what? The story goes on. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. Now, I don't know what wild living would be for you, but I guess that for this son in this story, it would probably be the same type of thing, but he really went and did it. I mean, he really went and took life to all of the extremes. I mean, he really did go crazy for a period of time. I mean, anything that you could think about in your mind's eye and just say, man, that's crazy. That's just absurd. He did what? Well, this boy, he was out doing it. I mean, he was out there drinking everybody under the table. He was getting hold of every illegal and drug-based substance he could possibly acquire. He was consuming the lot. I mean, he's in the casinos. He's gambling it all away. He's mixing with all the wrong people that he knows aren't gonna be good for him, but he's doing it anyway because in the moment, it just feels like fun. He's hooking up with every girl he possibly can, probably with prostitutes, probably in and out with a different partner every single night. I mean, he is just going crazy. I mean, now he'd have bought the best car, he'd be living in the best penthouse that you could acquire in our city, and he's just going wild. He's doing the same things that you would do if you were going wild. Well, this boy, he went there. This guy, he did it. And now everybody in the crowd is just shocked and horrified. Like, he wanted you dead? And then he did that with the money? Seriously? I mean, this son is way off the rails. And then he goes on, verse 14, he says this. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But note this, but no one came. No one gave. No one gave him anything. No one came to his aid. No one came to help him. Nobody gave him anything. And you know, if we're really honest, 
I think that you and I have maybe had seasons in our life where we felt a little bit like that. Where maybe you've just felt like abased and grounded and like life has just dealt you some bad cards in like a really difficult place in life and you know exactly what it's like to feel like, man, just no one's willing to help. Like if just somebody would be willing to, I don't know, lend me some money. If somebody would just be willing to feed my family. If somebody would just be willing to buy my kids some uniform. We all know what it's like to maybe have been in these seasons where it feels like no one's willing to give you the time of day or offer any help at all. Well, this boy was living there. No one was gonna help him. Why? Because everybody knows that there's one thing that travels faster than good news and that's bad news. And even though he's living in a distant land, they would have known what he'd been up to because bad news travels fast, right? They would have known of the descent and the problems and the trauma that he's caused his father in his own home. They would have known about the offensive nature that he spoke to his dad. They would have known that he squandered everything and now everybody's like, dude, you brought this on yourself. Like there's no way I'm gonna help you. There's no way I'm going to give you anything, not even food. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself at home, so now he's thinking, he's like, you know what? It's not always been like this. At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'm gonna go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now, this kid is starting to feel the weight and the shame and the guilt of everything that he's done wrong and his posture stoops low. Now his head is down and he's like thinking to himself, my dad is never gonna accept me back. He's never gonna want anything to do with me. So he comes up with this plan, right? Like I'll just go to him and say, hey dad, it's okay. I know I'm never gonna be your son again, but maybe you could just treat me as you treat the worst of your servants because even they have a better life than me. And he's starting to make, you know, bring the whole story together and he understands that he's made some epic mistakes and failures. So now he starts to write himself off of what he can now do in his future because of what he's already done. And we know what it's like to do this. His head's dropped, he's looking down, he feels the shame, he feels the embarrassment. So now the plan is, well, I'm just gonna go home to my dad and beg and plead and just hope that he responds to me in a way that's gracious and kind. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, His father saw him. I love that because it tells me that the father was looking for him. But the father saw him coming, filled with, and then there's two blanks because you've got to see the significance of this. Whatever now the Bible, the Scriptures tell us that the father is filled with is representative of what God our Father is filled with when He sees you on the horizon. Non-dependent on what you've achieved or accomplished or done, or done to even rule yourself out of what you think is God's family. Whatever God is now filled with relates to us directly today. And this is a game changer because there are many things that the Father could have been filled with, right? There are many emotions and sentiments that could have been hidden in the depth of His heart. And why would there not have been? This son has hurt the family name. He's been offensive to the family's household. He's squandered all of their money. And it would be right for us to say, well, it would make sense to me 
that the father would be filled with anger or resentment or revenge or hurt or pain, but it isn't what Jesus says. Because remember, whatever the father is filled with is now gonna govern and direct the entire future relationship that the son will now ever be able to have again with his father. So these two words are key. They are of paramount importance because what the father is filled with in the story means that our father in heaven is filled with also when he looks out towards you and I. And it doesn't say anger. It doesn't say resentment. It doesn't say hurt. It doesn't say pain. It doesn't say offence, it says that he was filled with love and compassion. And he sees him in the distance. And it tells us that with love and compassion, he ran to see his son, embraced him and kissed him. His father, his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. It's interesting that the father runs to the son. He doesn't walk. He doesn't stay on his white picket fence and just watch him coming home. It tells us that he runs out to the son. And it's interesting because in Old Testament Deuteronomy law, there was a law that was passed that would say, if you've got a really rebellious, offensive, hurtful son, and if he's banished from the family home, if he ever returns, then the right response would be that you kill him, that you stone him to death. So sometimes you've got to ask yourself the question, well, why is that information in the story? Because Jesus wasn't just creating this for the sake of creating words. He was telling us because he wanted us to know something significant. So when it says that the father ran towards his son, it's because the father knew. He had to get to the son first before the village did and before the city did and before the community did because they all would have been aware of all of his mistakes and his errors and his failings and trying to do the right thing for the father, they would have stoned him to death. And the only one thing that could stop that from happening is the father putting his arm round the son in a form of protection, now raising up a voice saying, no, 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 he's mine. Look, I know what he's done, everyone, but he is mine. I understand the hurt and the pain, the difficulty that he's caused us all, but he's mine. And he puts his arm round him with protection and he walks him back to the family home. Verse 22. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring on his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Perhaps my favourite line in all of scripture because right there in that moment, if you wanna know what to think about what God thinks about when He thinks about you. If you're not in relationship with Him, He wants to treat you with love and compassion, put His arm around you and throw a party for you because He's not mad at you, cross at you, angry at you. And right now you could be like, yeah, but the thing is, you don't know the things that I've done. You're right, I don't, but God does. And He's filled with love and compassion and wants to put His arm of protection around you and throw a party for you. (laughs) 